0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at IndivisibleRadio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag Indivisible Radio or leave us a voicemail at IndivisibleRadio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show.
0: This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
2: I'm Carrie Miller and I'm hosting Indivisible this evening from Minnesota public radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. If you've caught the show, you know that on Thursdays I examine the idea of American identity tonight. I want to talk about what happens to the identity of a community when its economy is turned upside down. Now, That can happen when a manufacturing plant closes or moves. It can happen when the way we use a resource like coal changes. It can happen as we move more deeply into automation. As our guests join us tonight, I'd like to hear from you on this. Do you live in a place that's strongly identified with an industry or a company or a resource? What's happened to your town's identity and to you as things have changed for that industry or company. So I think your experience with this and your sense of identity in the community in which you live is going to inform and be really important to our conversation tonight. Here's the phone number, 844-745-8255. You can talk to me about it on Twitter. It's at Carrie K-E-R-R-I-M, as in Minnesota PR, use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Again, if you live in a place strongly identified with an industry or a company or a resource, what's going on with your town's identity as things have changed? 844 745 You can find me on Twitter, at Carrie K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Amy Goldstein is with us. She's a reporter for The Washington Post and the author of Janesville, an American story, which is about a GM plant closing in Janesville, Wisconsin. And she's with us from Washington. Amy, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. Good to be with you. And Linda Torado is with us. She's the author of Hand to Mouth Living in Bootstrap America. And she's with us tonight from WOUB in Athens, Ohio. Linda, welcome. Good to have you in the conversation. Absolutely. Great to be here. Amy, I, I was thinking that this idea that communities identify with a plant or, a, or as I was saying, a resource or a specific industry, I think this may sound odd to people who are firmly embedded in the information age. You know, maybe they're part of that creative economy, but there are still a number of of communities that feel this close identity, aren't there?
3: Well, that's exactly right, or at least I should say the community that I spent several years looking at um, is very much that kind of a place. Uh, when the Janesville Assembly Plant, which was the oldest operating General Motors plant in the country, closed in uh, 2008, it was such a shock to this community. Uh, this plant had started making tractors in 1919, and it had begun turning out Chevrolets in 1923. So you'd had generations of people in Janesville, Wisconsin, for whom these JM jobs were the best working class jobs around. And people just couldn't believe when the plant closed that it wasn't going to reopen. And years later, people were still saying, just wait, it'll come back, but it never has.
2: Oh. You know, one of the things you write about, Amy, is the can-do spirit of Janesville and that it was a community, and maybe still is, that was deeply invested in the idea of making things. I mean, that that's larger than whatever job you have. That's the way you identify as a community and to one another,
3: isn't it? I think that's exactly right. And this had been a community with a long, proud industrial past. Before General Motors arrived, um, this was a place where uh, Parker Pen, uh, the big, fancy pen manufacturer, had grown up. Um, There was a man named Parker who was a telegraphy instructor in the late 1800s, and he came up with the idea for a better fountain pen, and started the Parker-Penn factory in Janesville. Now, this was a source of pride because long before globalization became something that we, you know, widely recognize, uh, Parker-Penn had international markets, markets. so it gave this fairly small city a sense of reach, a sense of being part of the world. And then a few decades later, when General Motors came along, there was real pride, um, even up till the end, In the quality of the work that was done at this plant. Um, This plant uh, won awards for the quality of its vehicles. um, At the point at which General Motors was about to manufacture its 100 millionth vehicle, Janesville was chosen to make it. And the whole GM leadership came to this plant to watch this blue Chevy Caprice come off the assembly line.
2: You know, Linda, this is the thing that I think maybe gets missed in cities or communities that that aren't identified by, you know, a single industry or a big plant. There's a lot of pride in doing that kind of work and being bonded within that community through that work. I I wonder if you've seen this as as you were writing your book.
1: Um, yeah, and, and not only from writing my book, um, the the fact that most of my life I've actually spent in mining communities um, and, and they've always been kind of petered out mines and it's always also been agricultural land. And so we do have that kind of tie to manufacturing and that reliance on on. Making things, um, I think, is a great way to put it um, to, for for how we make our bread and how we justify our existence on the planet. Because we don't create necessarily capital, and we don't have thirty different million identities to choose from, like you would if you're in New York City. Like right. you, the 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 thing that is the source of your pride is that you collectively can make this work when it is so few of you.
2: You know, um, I'm glad,
1: I'm really glad you mentioned
2: mining, Linda, because. I was thinking of this as an example where from the outside of a community that's tied closely to mining, Americans might say, well, it's unhealthy, it's dangerous. Why would you be proud of generation after generation doing that kind of work? But, I mean, it sounds like from the towns that that you've lived in and you're talking about here, that's the kind of work that defines the people in the community, and they're not Ashamed of that? They're proud of that.
1: No, and 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 the the thought is that there is no shame to be found in an honest day's work. Like if you're willing to work hard and support your family, then there's really no shame in in taking the jobs that are offered. But something else that I think gets missed in this conversation particularly around coal is that yeah it's a fairly dirty technology that we probably should have moved on from about 40 years ago we had you know the science where we could have started to take those steps at least and instead we kind of kept on with what we had and so when you want to talk about the economy of the nation and capital creation and who's keeping who wealthy what would america have done without the people that took pride in in the sort of life where you work with your hands and you get paid well for it. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that, but I want to go to the phones now because we have a number
2: of people calling in um, to tell us their their experiences with us, to Kristen in East Chicago, Indiana. Hey, Kristen, very curious to hear how you're thinking about this. Thanks for calling.
4: Hi. Um, so this is a extremely important issue, this issue of identity and place and work in places like east chicago chicago has made a lot of uh big news recently because the issues that our city has with lead have really come to the forefront they include issues of industrial legacy uh leading leaving contaminated soil with lead and arsenic and also um recently we've gotten issues with um lead in our uh pipes Mm -hmm. which is much more like flint michigan but um the important part of this that links into your conversation is that where um, once uh, when I was growing up, the the sign coming into Chicago said, "Welcome to the most industrial city in the world with pride," uh-huh. and it probably is per um, square footage, if not uh, the most, but one of the most. Um, in the timeline of my life, there's been a decoupling of the um, fortune of the community with the industry that is incredibly embedded inside of it, and um, there is a real um problem in recognizing the issues that are left behind for some of the, some of the people who who grew up with a middle class income or knew that their families worked hard for a middle class income and uh recognizing that they were really duped so um right now um East Chicago had inland steel, which is now um middle steel, and when I was a child, there were 70,000 people employed by Inland Steel, and there's less than, there's between 2,500 and 3,000 now, and that... Um, is wind steel is more productive than ever. So Uh there's a mythology that it's actually because um, U.S. steel is not doing well enough to support.
2: Let me, Um, uh, Kristen, here's the thing. You've said a lot of really good stuff there, and I don't want to lose track of it. Uh, Amy, one of the things that she was talking about is kind of the denial of what's happening to the industry and then this idea that... These were middle class jobs you could send your kids to college. you could raise your kids and send them to college on these jobs, and that's all changed too so so will you will you talk about the denial on that first and then we'll we'll go to the the economy of the jobs
3: well, uh Kristen, what you're saying about this expectation of having a middle class life and finding that you don't is very familiar to me, having spent several years researching what was going on in Janesville, the General Motors jobs. Uh, at the time the plant closed at the end of 2008, were paying $28 an hour. I mean, those are good wages. And if you had two people and a couple, both at the plant um, or the plant and a supplier, because uh, there are lots of local supplier companies that were paying not quite that well, but over $20 an hour, you had a good middle-class lifestyle. A lot of people had boats, campers, cabins up north, um, farther up in Wisconsin. And that was the expectation. And then suddenly it changed. And people had a hard time for a while. Well, well, I should say, first of all, different people began to experience the economic pain even within the same community at different times because this was a big United Auto Workers town. There was one uh, UAW local to which the GM workers and the suppliers uh, all belonged. But the GM benefits were better, and they were better even after the work went away, that the GM people were able to get supplemental unemployment benefits that were not available to people, the suppliers. So the GM people were kind of buffered for a year or two because of these extra benefits. Other people were shell-shocked more quickly as a question of, you know, what do I do? I mean, it's a terrifying thing. I also want to make another point um, based on something you said early in your remarks, uh, Kristen, which was about – place and work. I mean, that really rang true to me, because I think that there's this sort of theoretical belief that if work goes away in a community, well, the people should just leave, they should follow where the jobs now exist. And, you know, from the people that I've gotten to know in Janesville, who, you know, if you think about a plant that was there since early in the 20th century, had generations of people working in the same family at that plant, you know, you've got extended family there. I mean, it's a sense of where you belong. So the notion of leaving was a very hard thing for people to contemplate, and most people didn't do it.
2: Yeah, Linda, I'm so glad Amy, Amy pulled that out of what Kristen was saying, because you write about this, too, this idea, well, follow the jobs, get your education and follow the jobs, really kind of ignoring the deep sense of, of uh, place that people have where they grew up, where their families are, where they want to be.
1: I mean and yes and also it ignores a lot of the practicalities which is to say telling somebody just uproot yourself from everything you're familiar with and go to an entirely different culture um, where you're not really entirely sure how the, the what the rules are, how to operate and go get a better job. Um, is is very daunting to most people, I would think. Like, but to to the point. Look, my dad retired from EIDPONT with thirty five years. Mm-hmm. Like, they actually gave him a token at his retirement, and he gets a. That was the jobs that he had access to. Um, I worked at mostly fast food joints and bars because those were the jobs that I had access to. So it happened within a generation, the hollowing out of all of these futures and the collective grief that's happening throughout America that people really do mock, I think, far too much um, of, of this is what it was supposed to be and this is what it turned out to be. Uh that, that frustration is is, is kind of a, a rage that people are feeling of, wait, why have we been working so hard and why have we been following all these rules?
2: You know, Linda, I also don't want to miss what you just said about your dad's experience with us because that's uncommon today, too, that he would spend most of his working career, most of his working life with one company and be able to retire from that company. That doesn't happen anymore either, does it?
1: I mean, I, I hear it does amongst certain industries, but certainly not as a whole. And and that's part of what's hollowing out these cities is that it used to be or in these small towns is that there used to be a future in it. You could stay. I Look, I live in the woods in Ohio, really close to West Virginia, but I wake up with like filtered spring sunlight and actual birdsong. So it, 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 you make that trade if, if that's what you want your life to look like, if you don't connect well with cities If they make you twitchy, you know, a lot of people that grew up out here in areas like this find themselves more comfortable just kind of in their in their souls being in a place in a way that, you know, city friends, people that love cities describe it to me as they love the bustle and they love being able to, to melt into a crowd and go see anything. Um, and, and if you said there are no jobs in cities, why don't you just go out to a cheaper town to live? Like Business Insider recently made that recommendation, just go to a cheaper town to live. Well, that assumes that they want to go live in a small Midwestern town instead of living in New York or in, in Miami or wherever they may live. Linda Tirado is one of our guests tonight as we talk about that
2: connection to a sense of place, the identity of your hometown or the place where you've lived and worked. And what happens when the economy gets turned upside down? Maybe a plant uh, leaves, closes, maybe an industry changes, maybe a resource is no longer being used the way it was as with Coal mining, And that's the conversation we're having tonight. She's the author of Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. And Amy Goldstein is with us. She spent several years researching a new book about a GM plant closing in Janesville, Wisconsin. And her book is called Janesville, An American Story. So that's what I want to hear from you. I want to hear about that sense of identification that you have to the place that maybe you were raised, to the place that you're living in today. And then what it means to you and your family when something essential about the economy changes. If you're getting a busy signal on the phone lines, try me on Twitter. It's at Kerry, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, hashtag indivisible radio. And then when we have some open lines, call me. I want to hear from you. 844-745-8255. Talk to Michael in, uh, Portsmouth, Ohio. Hi, Michael. Where is that in, in the, uh, state of Ohio?
5: Uh, yeah, Portsmouth is actually uh, pretty near to Athens. It's oh, right on good. the Ohio River, like the very, very south southern point in the central uh, in the center of Ohio.
2: Okay, tell me a little bit about what you're thinking.
5: Oh uh, yeah, so Portsmouth, Ohio, um, years ago was one of the biggest uh, steel manufacturing um, cities in in the area because it's right on the river and it was easy access to the barges and things there. Um, but in the thirty or forty years since that manufacturing has pretty much completely disappeared, um, it has become a hotbed and a seat for um, prescription pill abuse and heroin Um, here in Ohio. We've been on CNN. We were on A&E's intervention. um, Dr. Drew has done specials on Portsmouth, um, and it seems like just as that industry left and there was no hope, um, it left a really impoverished mindset in that area, Um, and so many people have turned to, to prescription pills and heroin in lieu of being able to have actual jobs and sustain a... A lifestyle that's comfortable.
2: And Michael, have a lot of people left the town?
5: They have. So I I actually don't live in Portsmouth anymore. I moved about three years ago. uh, And most of the people that I know who haven't fallen into addiction have left. Um, Every day I live in Columbus now um, in the city, and every single day I miss the hills. uh, I miss the river. I, I miss how beautiful that place can be Um, but it's just it's not feasible to sustain a, a lifestyle down there anymore unfortunately
2: i'm really glad you heard the show michael and you had a chance to call thank you very much if you've just gotten in on our conversation on indivisible tonight we're talking about that identity that sense of connection that you feel to your hometown and the industry the resource the manufacturing plant in which many people in your town work what happens when that changes, keep on coming on the phone lines 844 745 8255 when we have some open lines and hashtag Indivisible Radio on Twitter at Carrie, K E R R I M P R. Stay with us. This is Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com/indivisible. This is Indivisible. Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller. You're hearing Indivisible tonight from Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. Amy Goldstein with us from The Washington Post and Linda Tirado. And both have written books that speak to what we're talking about tonight. Amy, I, I wondered if you had some thoughts about what Michael said about what, what gets left behind when a big plan or a big industry leaves.
3: Well, one of the things that I was really interested in trying to understand was what choices people make, or as I can sometimes think about it, what choices do people make when there are no good choices left? And unlike uh, this community of Portsmouth, Ohio, that Michael is describing, Janesville's is really not a place that has, for the most part, sunk into despair and drug use. I mean, that's not to say that everybody is happy or doing well, but it's a pretty resilient place. So I was very interested in How do people find their way forward when forward wasn't going to be quite as good as past was? So I focused on uh, three main families that had had a husband, wife, or both um, who had been auto workers and the choices that they made. And one of the people I write about um, was a GM worker um, who, like other GM workers in town, had an advantage over other people who had lost work. Because they were able to transfer to other g m plants hundreds of miles away, and this guy had sworn that he was not going to become one of these people who are known as g m gypsies mm. um, but over a couple of years, he decided that that was really his best and perhaps his only alternative um, if he didn't want his you know family to uh, lose their house and uh not be able to pay the bills. So he figured, you know, better for him to make the sacrifice than his entire family. And he began commuting in 2010 every week to a GM plant in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, which is a four and a half hour drive away. He and some other guys uh, carpool. They leave about eight o'clock every Monday morning and they work second shift so they can come home late on Friday nights, but at least they have more or less three nights at home. And you know, I took a drive with them back one uh one night, um a night that turned out to be his third anniversary of this commute. He's now been doing it for seven years, but this was the third anniversary of this uh this weekly commute. And uh we all got back to Janesville um about three thirty in the morning. And one of the things that really struck me was that when we arrived in town, um the guy who was driving that uh that week Um, took what was the obvious route uh, from the south of town where one person was dropped off up to where this man I was mostly focusing on lives on the northern end of town. But they were telling me sometimes they take different routes through the small city just because they like to see the streets of their city in the middle Hmm. of the night Hmm. because it's so pleasurable to come home.
2: Hmm. Beth in Pennsylvania called to say, I moved from my hometown in Florida to follow job opportunities. I regret leaving. I'm invisible here. I want to go home. I don't have family here. Moving for a job is not always the answer. I wish we'd stayed to ride things out. And Seymour called from St. Louis, Missouri. He says, a lot of companies have left here. I worked for Southwestern Bell when they moved to Texas. This used to be a Budweiser town. To the phones to David in Apalachicola, Florida. Hi, David. Thanks so much for waiting. Hi. Hi.
6: Hi. I just want to say, I've lived here a number of years. I edit the newspaper here. Ah. And this is a town that at one time was one of the leading seafood towns in Florida, on the Gulf of Mexico. Shrimping, fishing, oystering, crabbing. And... There was a net ban in Florida that bans big nets as well as foreign imports. And right now, the shrimping is down to a trickle. The plants, the the oyster plants have closed. There's only maybe a half dozen left in the county. And but at the same time, um, and it used to be a job for fishermen. It's a very rugged, individualistic job. You. You don't even have to finish high school. You get out, and you can make some good money.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: That's the way it used to be. Now, what's happened is the seafood reputation has remained, but the money that's coming in is tourism.
7: Yeah.
6: It's Yankees from the north moving in, and they love the town, and it's actually brought some prosperity, but the actual identity that i see with the kids with with fishing families is lost because there really isn't the production anymore there's restaurants there's hotels there's tourism a lot tourists are flocking here and what it's meant identity wise is the kids are in, they're in a period of transition they they they, they can only dream of a past They've got to adapt now to a computerized world, a a world that that they're not going to fish and make a great living anymore.
2: You know, David. One of the things that occurred to me too is when you were describing this transition and how quaint tourists find the town is that behind. I mean, the tourists don't see what happens off season, or they don't see the working three tourist jobs to make ends meet, right? That's kind of behind the facade, I would imagine.
6: I'll get in trouble for saying this, but there's a, often that, that, that this huge percentage of seafood comes from Apalachicola. Well, those statistics are probably misleading because they're processed here, but they're foreign, they've been caught by foreign fishermen. Well, wow. and, and so there's a perception that doesn't match the reality, and that's okay. The town is actually taking advantage of that, yeah. and that's good. But um, when it comes to actually uh, what a person does with for a living and the independence, the ruggedness, the, the self-reliance that they feel, they're now much more dependent on tourists, on tips, on uh, working as chefs and cooks and uh, house cleaners, and those that, it's changed.
2: I, I'm really grateful for the call, David. Uh, Linda, this is uh, something else that I was thinking about and preparing to talk with you was this idea that um, having to be reliant on, I don't know, social services, maybe jobs that, again, you have to piece together two or three jobs, I mean, that's a that's a dignity-stealing kind of long-term proposition, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, um, which is – it's one of the reasons I find it so particularly inhumane for people to say, well, just go where the jobs are, is that a precarious life already is full of so much indignity and so much living at the whims of other people. Um, that that to say to do that without any sense of familiarity and without any social support and against a, a hostile system that you don't quite understand, um, you know, is 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 beyond the pale um, as far as I'm concerned.
2: Amy, what what do you think when you hear the the politicians' answer, which is often, "Well, we're going to retrain." These people, we're going to get, uh, you know, automakers or coal miners into classrooms, and we're going to teach them to be something else. I, I know that I've seen research where it's pretty mixed on the results of retraining. What, what was your what was your experience when you were reporting on this?
3: Yeah, I took a good hard look at retraining, uh, at least in the context of Jane's. So let me make an a point, a point first um, on this issue of dignity that mm-hmm. we were talking about just a moment ago. Because one of the things that I really came to believe um, out of this uh, out of this work that I've done is that falling out of the middle class or falling a little bit farther down into the middle class is really different than having been poor all along. And one of the ways it's different is that people really are loath to accept help. Um, people just don't want to accept public assistance of any kind, even when it's available, even when they qualify for it, because it's not their self image. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people I know who, you know, eventually applied for what's called uh, food shares, food stamps in Wisconsin, had a very hard time bringing themselves to do it. Um, and there were um, a couple of nonprofits in town that I would spend a lot of time talking to who would tell me that people would call. And they were used to hearing from the longtime poor people in town. And they would knew how, know how to steer them to... Uh, welfare or uh medicaid um the, you know uh, Wisconsin's version of those programs but the newly unemployed people who were used to being middle class and expected they always would be they weren't calling for that help they didn't want that help they wanted to know how do you help me find a job
4: mm-hmm.
3: so it's a really different hard mindset in terms of retraining um you know it struck me that if you think about the economic policies in this country that republicans and Democrats espouse, there's not a lot of commonality on the two parties' lists, except for job retraining. It's something that people all across the ideological spectrum tend to think is a really good idea. So I was very eager to look at, well, at least in this one community's context, how well is it working? And there's a college in town, it's called Blackhawk Technical College, that I came to think did a really terrific job. I mean, all the things that federal policymakers would encourage colleges to do this little school was doing. I mean, they were already meeting with business people. Um, I mean, those people who still had business in town to try to map out where were jobs going to exist that they could steer uh, laid off workers um, into training for those fields. Um, when they discovered that factory workers coming back to school, sometimes for the first time in half a lifetime, didn't really know how to com- uh, use computers. In some cases, didn't know how to turn on a computer. They've been good at their factory jobs, but the jobs have never required them to know these things. And the school very quickly created computer boot camps. I mean, they did all kinds of things to help um, the adjustment of these scared people who didn't really want to be in school, but were told this is this is your path forward. So I looked at you know statistically what happened to people in this area who retrained versus unemployed people in the same area who hadn't gone back to school, and I was really surprised by. What, um, I found, I did this work with the help of a couple of good labor economists. And statistically, it turned out that, you know, individually, some people did fine out of retraining. But statistically, it turned out that people who went back for job retraining, uh, in this part of southern Wisconsin were less likely to have steady work all four seasons of the year Uh than those who hadn't gone back to school. And the drop from their income before the recession to afterwards, um, was greater. Uh, so on balance, this was not something that was helpful, and I don't think it was the fault of the college. I think it's that no amount of well-intended retraining can compensate for a lack of available jobs.
2: Darielle says on Twitter, grew up in one of those mill towns in Wisconsin. The mill closed. Lucky parents saw the writing on the wall and insisted on college and relocating. Back to the phones now to uh, Vincent in Chicago. Hey, Vincent, Hi.
8: Hi, how are you?
2: Doing good.
8: I hear you guys. Yeah, tell me what you're thinking about. Um, A little bit about my history. I'm a third-generation UAW employee. I grew up around the UAW and the sense of value that they had for the UAW. But when I got out of uh, high school in 1981, they were not hiring. Ford was not hiring. Mm -hmm. So I went into the Air Force. I did my four years. Came out in '85. Still, I wasn't able to get in there. Um, went to work in the bar scene, the restaurants. I couldn't really get uh, find a job uh, to my technicalities that I learned in the Air Force. But finally, finally, in 1994, I was hired by Ford Motor Company. And since then, I've seen so much of it becoming more of a company-oriented um based society it's like what the company says is what goes uaw is losing its um influence and like right now i work right down right next to somebody making 30 percent less than me uh-huh. because wow. of the contracts that they're trying to force down our throat
2: yeah let, let and me vincent i i want to take that and go back to amy on this how how uh influential could the union be When General Motors was deciding they were going to close this plant?
3: Well, Janesville was a real UAW town. Um, It shaped the identity. These were the best jobs in town. Um, It shaped the politics in town. Janesville was and still is a very democratic community. I mean, not monolithically so, but it's, you know, majority democratic, even though a lot of the union jobs have gone away. And within the context of the UAW, uh Janesville's local, it was Local 95 of the UAW, had a reputation for really being willing to work with management. Um, so it was a very strong force. And, you know, some other parts of the UAW thought that this local was little too accommodationist at times. Hmm. Uh, but they worked things out. Um, and when I arrived for the first time, which was midway through 2011, so the plant had been closed for about two and a half years at that point, a little over two and a half years, I was struck that there was still a UAW local and the leadership of it, the president and the vice president were GM retirees because there were no longer workers who get release time from their jobs to run the local. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I remember in 2012, um, there's a big labor fest parade, or at least there has been for a long time, big labor fest parade on Labor Day. And I remember the first time I saw that parade for myself, which was in 2012, you know, it was a, coming down Main Street. It was this classic small city parade on Labor Day. And I kept waiting for the GM unit to march, the UAW unit to march by. And instead, the only thing I saw were two UAW retirees carrying a banner for the retirees. There were no UAW wow. workers marching down Main Street that day.
2: Linda, I, I don't want to miss something um, that I really wanted to hear from you on, which is Amy said a few minutes ago that in janesville people people were loath to take help because it really didn't fit with how they saw themselves. Is that something that you would also describe in in the community that you live in?
1: Um yeah, absolutely. I actually live about an hour and a half from Portsmouth, and we had a previous ah, caller right talking about kind of the the state of of Southern Ohio. Um, Where it is that kind of more depressed feeling, coal went away before manufacturing, so the area has been dealing with it for longer. Um, Things of that nature have made it kind of the next step. So we're seeing a lot more of the depression and a lot of the – uh, struggles, um, but people are are a little more accepting of of food stamps in the middle class towns that I've lived in that have had this hollowing out of jobs. You know, there's this this mythos we tell ourselves of we're self sustaining, we're independent, we're rugged strong individuals, and you tend to find that trait you know a lot more in people who live in in less populated areas, kind of by definition. Um, and and that self-conception and the shame that we put around you know even unemployment, you get people don't want to take unemployment. they think it's a handout. they don't understand that it's an insurance program that they have paid into and and that stigma of, of taking something instead of producing um, is is huge in, in a ton of places. and I don't want to misrepresent the place that I live and say that there aren't people that feel that way too here. It's just that our, our poverty rate as I think, a little bit higher and has been for longer and so you just get a, a little bit more used to seeing people you know with snap cards in the grocery store when you say this is the way that people
2: see themselves I mean reality eventually I mean and and that's that's actually kind of at the heart of what we're talking about tonight, right what happens to your your sense of identity when you realize you're forced into circumstances, that don't fit with who you think you are, Linda. Does that make sense?
1: It it does. Um, I mean, look, I sold an entire book and have made a, a couple of years long career now explaining to people that most Burger King workers don't feel like they're not better than burger flipping. It's just that, you know, that's the job available that's going to pay the rent. But one of the favorite cooks I've ever worked with used to sing amazing arias on a midnight shift if nobody was, you know, in the restaurant to com- hear him complain. So, you know, people are never just what you think they are. People are always going to have a self-conception of of being decent, hardworking types of folk that just need a decent shot. Let, and every- Linda, let me say this. Linda Torado, Amy Goldstein with
2: us. You're listening to Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at BlueApron.com slash Indivisible.
0: This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change.
2: I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Indivisible tonight from Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. Linda Tirado with us. She's the author of Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap, America. Amy Goldstein with us. Janesville, an American story. Her story about what happened when a GM plant closed in Janesville, Wisconsin. And from you tonight, your experiences with identifying with a community in which the economy kind of turns upside down. A plant closes, a resource is mined or used differently, an industry changes uh, and really appreciating to hear from you on this tonight. eight four four seven four five eight two five five 8255 On Twitter, at Carrie NPR, hashtag Indivisible Radio. Linda, I am so sorry for interrupting you because you were saying people are not... What what one dimension and what you think they are just from the outside and will
1: you finish that before we go back to the call? I will. And you're lovely. We were (laughs) going to break. I felt bad for running over. Um, No problem. No. The the thing I was saying is that you you know people are they think they are who they think they could be and that's mm-hmm. a very common human thing and if you think of yourself as as hard and a stick to itiveness kind of person you know you're going to wonder where's my opportunity to just work hard and and why should i have to wait for somebody to, to create one. Um, and I think that something else we don't take into account very often when we're talking about these towns is that the mythos of, of living in agricultural or rural areas in, in small towns that aren't connected to huge cities, is, is that, you know, not so many generations ago, you just moved out here and lived. And if you were hardworking enough, you would survive and your kids would thrive. And so, you know, we're not that far away from that mythos either. And I think we forget that frequently in these conversations. Call
2: here from Quincy in Indiana.
1: Hi, Quincy. What's your story?
9: Hello. Um, My story is I I was told to be very brief, but, you know, I graduated. I had a political science degree Uh in Illinois State University. I could not find a job. So I actually work in a steel mill, the largest steel mill in the country in East Chicago, Indiana. Wow. That one of the callers talked about, and I've been there 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And the problem is with modernization and globalization, the steel industry has changed. It's become more "quote unquote" efficient. And what that means is there's less of those high-paying jobs. And so when one of those jobs is lost. Uh, Where it's either you're going to either replace it in the service sector or in tech. That's what it seems. And they say get training or learn how to write code. Is this? Everyone has the aptitude to do that. I was a computer science major before I switched to political science. So, you know, it's not a function of intelligence. Sometimes it's aptitude. Not everyone can actually learn those tech jobs. So you have to actually work two, three service jobs to make up for that job that paid, you know, $80,000, $90,000 a year. That's what I just wanted to say. It unnerves me when they say, hey, just go learn, Yeah, you know, learn Quincy, one of the STEM, STEM jobs. I, I'm yes.
2: curious about the, the job that you do in the steel mill and how long you think you're going to do it.
9: Oh, okay. Well, I'm 46. Um, I, I'm a bricklayer. So we actually, there's bricklaying the uh, the steel ladles are lined with brick to keep, you know, the hot steel from burning through and it wears off, you know, ever so often. So I go in, tear it out and replace it. And I've been doing that for you know about a couple of decades, close to how long I think I'm going to be doing it. I've set myself up where I have enough passive income where I can actually get retirement in 10 years. And if not, my investment properties actually sustain me. So I saw this coming Uh and I set myself up where I have enough passive income to sustain me if it does leave, but I'm just one of the few lucky few, you know, but, you know I, I, you know, I worry about the rest of the people. When this leaves, you know, you can't just say, go be a computer programmer, right. you know, because yeah. not everyone can learn that. You know what I mean? Quincy, so
2: um, good. To, you know. I'm really glad you heard the, the show and you had a chance to call in. Amy, what do you hear in that?
3: Well, I hear a couple of things. Um, one of them is that, um, you know, the work that people sometimes have to patch together uh still doesn't add up to what people wish their income were uh income was, and that's very much been true in janesville i've gotten to know pretty well a social study high school social studies teacher in town who's one of the uh people in my story and she's told me that um you know she's had you know particularly right after the few years right after the great recession she had kids who wanted to find part-time jobs and it was really hard for them to do so these were you know her teenage students because they were adults who used to have good jobs who are now grabbing jobs at um, the convenience store the burger king uh, and putting together a couple jobs and it was just hard for kids to you know start saving for college right. um, so that says something about uh you know what options you have On the point that, um, Quincy, you make about um, aptitude, you know, the small college that I took a pretty hard look at, Black Hawk Tech, did a lot of testing along with um, the local job center in town that was steering people into job retraining with a lot of of federal aid to do so. Um, They did a lot of testing of people's aptitudes and interests. And one of the things that I remember early on, some of the college instructors and some of the – there were just a couple counselors at the school that was getting just slammed with laid-off factory workers. And they were telling me that people uh, often were not that attentive to what their aptitude tests showed. All they wanted to know or mostly what they wanted to know was, what can I learn that will take me back to what I used to make for a living? Wow. Right. I, I, Linda, I wanted to ask
2: you this before we take some more calls. Um, as I prepared for the conversation, I read a piece by Aliyah Habib. I think she wrote it for BuzzFeed in which she, she wrote about how people of color in Rust Belt states are particularly overlooked. But, but here's something else she said that was important. She said, you know, the steady stream of articles and books, everybody's talking about hillbilly elegy. And she wrote this about that. They, quote, turn places like my hometown, which was wilkes Pennsylvania, into political fetish objects. I mean, she adds that suddenly after the Trump election, you know, everyone's talking about the white working class and trying to understand this and applying, I guess, even as we try to understand it, a lot of stereotypes to it. What would you yeah. say about that?
1: I would say that we should probably reprint that article and put it out 50 million times. Um, <laughs> the Look, I have always personally lived in majority white areas when I've lived in the country. I've lived in Utah and I've lived close to in, in Appalachia, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so my storytelling tends to focus on, you know, what do we do with communities that don't have a whole lot of interaction with any sort of diversity of thought, much less diversity of experience, Right. Um, and – but it, it disturbs me when people send reporters from New York to cover Portsmouth, Ohio um, for three days and then they, they kind of get taken on this tour um, that's guided by whoever they made contact with and then they go back home and, and they get a good idea for the feel of the place and the, the, the state of the buildings and the state of repair. Um, but they, they frequently don't engage with stories that aren't their own. And, and that's a problem of representation in the media. Um, but you, you can talk to, um, people like on Twitter. I follow Black Amazon and Mickey Kendall specifically for this. Um, both women of color who deal in, in working class communities and, and talk about working class issues, um, for, for communities of color. And they are vastly different. Um, than the the issues that we faced in in small town Utah when the the plants shut down and left or you know in, in small town Appalachia when the mine closed up because we're not you know look for all that it really sucks to have your life turned upside down and and, and be in a position of disfavor um, you know this is a group of people who have an entirely different cultural reference for that having happened to them um and and i think that that we very infrequently uh take the time to realize that that there is not going to be one narrative for millions and millions and millions of people and and I think that we do need to ask ourselves, you know, how, how are we representing this narrative and are we reporting it responsibly? Like, print the article and, and mail one to everybody in the country as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Anthony called
2: from Massachusetts. Uh, he says, my town was once known as the shoe capital of the world. We manufactured shoes. Now we're recovering from the decline of manufacturing. Our local leaders are working to increase dining, recreation destinations, and services for Boston commuters. Amy, I don't know. Do you want to have a say about – you did not just parachute in, do a few articles, and leave. So you're not an example of this. You spent several years reporting on Janesville. But maybe you have a thought on it.
3: Um, I did. And I guess one of the things that strikes me just listening to our conversation this evening is, um, you know, the subtitle of my book is Janesville, but then the subtitle is An American Story. Uh, because my idea was that no place is perfectly representative of every place, but there are many places that have gone through this kind of economic trauma, and that perhaps by looking closely at one place, um, it would be instructive about what's been happening in a lot of places. And uh, a couple points to make on that. One, when I thought about where to choose, because if you're going to write about one place, you better choose pretty carefully. <laughs> and uh, there are lots of reasons I chose Janesville, but one of the things I thought about was uh, I wanted to find a community in which the pattern of job losses had pretty much mirrored the national pattern of job losses during the Great Recession. Uh, so in the Great Recession, there were a fair number of jobs that disappeared that were pretty well paid but hadn't required a lot of higher education. That was true nationally. It was true of Janesville. Uh, there were more jobs lost by men than by women. That was true of Janesville. Uh, so, you know, I hope that this could be a microcosm that spoke to something broader. And I've been struck in our conversation tonight about the kinds of work that we've heard been hearing has been going away. We've heard about seafood places, and we've heard about uh, steel places, right. and we've heard about shoe places. And, you know, my hope through my book was that by showing very close up what really happens to people and to the texture of a community when its best work goes away, that there'll be things that people could identify with, even if the work that went away or is going away or might go away in their places isn't the same kind of work.
2: Call here from Donald in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Hi, Donald. Thanks for waiting.
7: My pleasure. How are you?
2: Doing good. Tell me a little bit about yourself.
7: I grew up in Leadville, Colorado, which was a mining town in the central mountains in Colorado. And when I grew up, it was very much a mining town. Um, And, uh, I mean, there was a mine there, a very large mine employed 3,000 people in a town of 7,000 people. Uh So it was the going concern. And and when I was in my early to mid-20s, the mine shut down. And, uh, I mean, that was basically the end of the town as I knew it. I had grown up in it. Um, I was I was fortunate enough myself that I had, I'd gone off to college. I'd actually gone to college and come back and gone back to mining. Actually, um, so I've, my life has turned out uh, well. My, myself, I was able to go on and have had a successful career. But I still have. I still very much identify with that town, and and in a, in a lot of ways, I identify with being a miner. It was very much a a part of who I sort of think I am to this day. Even though really. It doesn't exist anymore yeah
2: what's it like when you go back home to visit friends and family
7: um, um it's, it's it's hard actually because I, I always do recall what what the town was I mean the town still exists what it's turned into is a bedroom community for service workers at, at the ski areas like Vale or Breckenridge Copper mountain things like that it's it's close by to the to, to the resort areas but so the the, the maids the housekeepers the maintenance people that's who lives in the town these days and then commutes you know to work in the ski areas but right. it is it it isn't the town i grew up in and when i go back i know it's I, it doesn't feel like the town i grew up in and i still sort of yearn for that town i still i still have to go back i have to go back and get a, a, a dose of it if you will after after a period of time but i i um um i it it's still something I miss very much, and um, 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 I'm I, glad you I, called. I hear,
2: <laughs> I'm glad you heard the show. It's very interesting to hear you say that you still feel like a minor, even though you've been away from it for so long. To the phones here to Zach, listening in Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, Zach. I wanted to make sure we got you in. Hi, how you doing? Doing good. Tell me what you're thinking about. We're a little tight on time.
0: Okay, uh, well, I was inspired to call because I'm actually from the Janesville area ah,
3: uh-huh. and uh
0: and and um your your guest did a really good job uh, describing everything. Um yeah, I'm I'm uh emotionally hooked to that area, although I left. Um and and one thing I noticed growing up, uh, the GM plant was still in operation and and uh you know, you had a mix of kids growing up where either they wanted to get into the GM plant because it was a good job to have or they were ambitious enough to go off and do something else uh and then there was another group that uh, didn't know what they wanted to do at all mm-hmm. when the GM pack closed it 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 kind of made that difficult and and uh, what was left was uh the Janesville and the surrounding towns around it were were left with kind of the people that didn't have the ambition to go off and 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 better their lives and and uh, although I really love that area and I'd I'd love to go back and and live there someday Uh, It 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 is kind of a depressed area because of the real talent has has moved off somewhere else because of the lack of opportunities.
2: Yeah, um, Zach, you've really put that well. Uh, Linda, um, to you on this idea that I mean, you heard Zach say the talented people left, the people that had an education left. I mean, that's also got to shape an image of who you think you are as you remain, I would imagine. (laughs)
1: Honestly, I think that's the difference between um, towns that have this happen in the most recent wave and towns that have been dealing with this for quite some time. How how so? Um, and, And we talk about the difference between these kind of communities that nobody really wants to be seen at the welfare office versus the ones near where I live that are you know ravaged by Oxycontin and things. Um I, and I think that you 've nailed that pretty pretty clearly there um that that it is a question of well when everybody who 's capable of getting a degree and, and suited to that sort of thing like goes to the city and all that 's left is everybody. That you want, you know what I mean. That that does kind of seep into your bones. But awesome. b- very briefly, I just wanted to. I know we're tight on time. Um, I d- hope I didn't misspeak in the last segment when I was saying about flyover uh, journalists because I think that that's a problem that we do face. But I've actually had a chance to read. Um, parts of Janesville, and it's it's actually a fantastic book that everybody should buy. I think the representation problem is often, you know, how carefully and from what angle the subject's actually being introduced of, of are we on an exploratory fact-finding mission to see what kind of creatures live out here in Flyover country versus, you know, <laughs> let's go and right. actually take a look at America. So I, I do want to be clear to, to, to say that there are definitely two different tacks there, and I didn't mean to imply at all that this book was the, the latter. Yeah, Linda, really a pleasure
2: to have you. On on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for your views and your
2: experience and helping to inform the discussion. And you. Thank you so much. Amy, thank you very much for the reporting, for the book, for your perspective. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Really good to have you in the conversation. My pleasure to be with you. Amy Goldstein's book is called Janesville, An American Story. And Linda Torado's book is called Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. Now, Next Thursday is our last night of Indivisible, and I'm going to have a show about what we've learned from each other. Now, I think this is really important. I hope you'll make a note to tune in. Think of all the voices we've heard from the guests, but most importantly, from you, if you've called or you've tweeted in from all these different cities and towns across the country. I mean, that is the power of Indivisible right there. And so I want to pick up on that next Thursday night and say, what did we hear from one another? What did we learn from one another? And we'll do that at 7 o'clock Central, 8 o'clock Eastern, wherever you are, I want you to call next Thursday on Indivisible. In the meantime, tweet me, at Carrie K E R R I M P R hashtag Indivisible Radio. Support for Indivisible is provided in part by Emerson Collective, the Ford Foundation, and the Jacob and Valeria Langloff Foundation.
0: If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.